Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Well, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And from these sons, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. It tells us in Genesis chapter 9, in verses 18 and 19. Then Genesis chapter 10, we're going to be, which we're going to be kind of referring to a little bit today, is what is often called the table of nations. And I think when we call it the table of nations, we don't mean a, a kitchen table, like what I have pictured here, but I just pictured it that way so that you could remember that. Uh, Genesis chapter 10 is the table of nations because it really lays out for you uh, the, the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, as they spread out after the flood over the whole face of the earth. It just kind of gives you a picture, a, a, a big picture of what happened there. For those who, who study Genesis chapter 10 really in depth, which we're not going to really do, we're not going to examine each one of these names in this genealogy, but for those who do, they, they'll tell you that in general, Japheth, who was the oldest son of Noah, his descendants uh, in general headed north into, into Europe before kind of spreading out and even go, heading over towards India and into Asia. Um, and then Ham's descendants, represented by the big H up there on the screen, Ham's descendants, now Ham was the youngest son of Noah, and through one of the sons of Ham, named Canaan, uh, Ham's descendants took possession of the pro- what became the promised land. So through Canaan, Ham's descendants first possessed the promised land. They dispersed from from the Tower of Babel. They all went their separate directions at the Tower of Babel. Ham's descendants took possession of the Promised Land and then descended further south and west into Africa, more than likely. And then, finally, Shem's descendants, who was the middle son of Noah, moved sort of south and east and, and populated the Middle East in general. Right? So the Genesis chapter 10, the table of nations, it, it explains for us how from three, three men... We have all the various nations and cultures of the world. It's incredible. You know, evolutionists will tell you that there are many different races, right? That's wrong. We are one race. We are one, we are one uh, blood. We are all descended from Noah, right? Through Japheth, Shem, and Ham. Now, on either side of this table of nations, Genesis chapter 10, we have this curious little story that we kind of talked about two weeks ago where Noah, in, in chapter 9, uh, he has this drunken incident where he, he drinks some wine that he's made and he passes out naked in his tent, and, um, which leads to him sinning against him and leads to him actually looking forward to the, the future and seeing sort of this table of nations 
that will come in, in Genesis chapter 10. And through that, Noah, he curses the descendant Canaan of, of Ham, and he blesses his other two sons. And we're going to unpack that a little bit here. So Genesis chapter 9 sort of looks forward to this, to chapter 10, the table of nations. And then next week, we're going to be talking about Genesis chapter 11, which is the story of the Tower of, of Babel, or Babel, tomato, tomato, you know, depending on how you say it. Genesis chapter 11 is about the Tower of Babel, and it sort of looks back on chapter 10, right? It, the episode of, of God mixing up the languages at the Tower of Babel happens at some point, uh, you know, in the middle of chapter 10, and we'll talk about that next week. But this week, for now, we're going to be looking here at, at, at the end of chapter 9. We're going to be spending one more week uh, discussing this incident of Noah and his drunkenness. And just to remind you, a couple weeks ago, we did spend the entire time together on just two verses. I intended to get through the whole passage, but I just couldn't get past this, uh, this story of Noah's drunkenness in his tent. You think about this. I was talking with my connect group this week about this. This is the first time that alcohol is mentioned in the Bible. Genesis chapter 9 with Noah. And it's, it makes quite a, a scene on its first emergence here as he, Noah gets himself drunk, uncovers himself, and passes out. Let's just reread the verses, verses 20 and 21. It says, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Now, so that's the, the, the episode there in a nutshell. Um, and we used that to talk about the sin of drunkenness two weeks ago. So if you missed that, I would encourage you to go online and, and check that out. Uh, but to be honest with you, the, the, the focus of this passage is not on Noah's sin. Right? As shocking as it was to see the prophet Noah, the man that God used to, to bring uh, us as a human race through the, the, the judgment of the flood, drunken and passed out on the floor of his tent. That's not really the point of this passage. The focus of this passage is what happens next as a result of Noah's indiscretion. The focus of this passage is actually upon the sin of his son, Ham. Let's read about it here in verse 22. The sin of Ham. It says, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. First of all, I want you to notice that every time in this section of scripture when Ham is mentioned, Moses immediately mentions that Ham is the, um, the father of Canaan. Every time. And that's going to be important for this story. It's going to be important really for salvation history. We're going to talk about that here in a minute. Now, the details of what happened here are as scant and as modest, I think, as can be. Uh, Ham's actions here, I think, seem, at, at first glance, they seem awkward. I mean, this is kind of an awkward story, isn't it? And I would also say it seems sort of immature <laughs> for Ham to go in and do what he did, you know, see his father lying there and then go out and tell his brothers. But if you look ahead, you, you know what's coming. Noah is going to curse Canaan, Ham's son, because of what he did here. 
And so it, it leads us to, to ask the question, what, why was this worthy of a curse, what he did? Why was it such a big deal? What does it mean that Ham saw the nakedness of his father? You know, some have speculated that perhaps this is a euphemism for, you know, seeing the nakedness of your father is just a euphemism for a, a more disgusting sexual sin that they were too modest to mention. But I, I don't think that that's the case here. I don't think that we need to see this as a, some sort of a euphemism for something more disgusting. I think what seems to fit best with this story is the, the plain reading of the text. When it says that Ham walked in and saw his father lying naked on the floor, I think that's what it means. He saw his father in, in his nakedness lying on the floor. Can you imagine walking in to your parents' house and seeing your father lying naked on the floor and instead of being moved to immediately help him and cover him and, and, and you know, sort of uh, minimize his shame, instead you in glee, sort of gather up his garments and go outside and and broadcast it to the neighborhood? Can you imagine doing that? It's very wicked, right? I mean, at at first glance, something that just seems awkward and immature is actually incredibly dishonoring to his father, right? The, The scriptures tell us, in fact, one of the Ten Commandments, the fifth commandment is what? You guys know the Ten Commandments? It's honor your father and your mother. In fact, I've got it on the screen here. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. It made one of the top ten, right? It's number five. I think sometimes we, you know, we tend to, to um, in our own humanness, we, we sort of have our list of sins that are a big deal and then we have our list of sins that are not a big deal, right? And Oftentimes we think of honoring your father and mother as sort of being one of the, you know, respectable sins. Right? Everybody does it. Right? But it's a big deal to God. It's one of, the, one of the Ten Commandments. Likewise, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, he lists disobedience to parents in a really long list of unrighteousness that evidences a debased mind. Right? Let's read this together. Romans chapter 1. Can you read that kind of small print? I'll read it for you. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 28. It says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. He's talking about the Gentile nations. To do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. There it is, right? You think, wow, does that fit on that list here? Let's, let's think about this, Paul. Yes, it fits on the list. Disobedience to parents, foolishness, faithless, I'm sorry, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Dishonoring your, your mother and your father is a big deal to God. And Ham seriously dishonored his father, whom he ought to have honored. 
And I don't think we should minimize that in any way. I think it's enough that Ham took some kind of twisted delight in his father's shame. Apparently, like I said, taking his father's garment and leaving his father in that shameful position and going out to spread the news to his father's shame to the rest of the family, trying to recruit them in this, recruit the brothers. You know, I I believe that Ham's reaction to his father's shame points not to just Ham's dishonoring of Noah, but I, I really think it's not too much of a stretch when you look at how Noah ends up cursing here and blessing. There, it, you can kind of piece together that not only did Ham have a disregard for Noah and a, and a, you know, just he shamed his father Noah, but he also seems to have had a disregard for Noah's God. Think about that. A commentator by the name of Robert Candlish makes this point well when he writes that uh, Ham not merely dishonored Noah as a parent, he disliked him as a preacher of righteousness. Hence his, hence his satisfaction, his irrepressible joy when he caught the patriarch in such a state of degradation. Ah, he has found that this godly man is no better than his neighbor's. He has got behind the scenes. He has made a notable discovery, and now he cannot contain himself. Forth he rushes, all hot and impatient to publish the news. So welcome to himself. And if he can meet with any of his brethren, what a satisfaction to cast this choice specimen in their teeth and so make good his right to triumph over them and their faith ever after kind of older English, but this idea here that Ham just is rushing out and there's some history here, I think, in other words. James Boyce adds to this. He says, the only thing that is worse than committing a specific sin is the devilish delight of finding out and reveling in that sin in other people. Right? Isn't it? Just, isn't it just a, a different kind of wickedness to sort of delight in seeing someone else uh, someone else's downfall, right? I think that's what Ham is doing here. And so l- let's just stop for a, m- a moment and, and make some application with this before we go any further. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. The Apostle Paul says this in, in Ephesians Chapter 6, 1 through 3, children obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Then he quotes the fifth commandment to honor your parents. And he notes that, that this is the first commandment that God has given that has with it an accompanying promise. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. There is a natural blessedness to honoring and obeying your parents. And by the way, honoring your parents doesn't end when you move out, right? We are to honor our mother and father at all time. And likewise, the the other side of this is parents. Paul goes on in verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Parents, there is no greater heritage. There's no greater heritage that you can pass on to your children than to give them the Lord, to instruct them in the ways of the Lord. You know, there's so much we as parents do for the benefit of our kids. 
There's so much that we, so many uh, pressures on us to, uh, you know, we want them to be successful and happy and well-educated and socially connected and well-rounded. We want them to have opportunities to be involved in sports and the arts, and we want them to be positioned for scholarships and to get into good colleges and all of these sorts of things. But let me tell you, parents, I get all that. Believe me, I feel, I feel those pressures myself as a parent. Yet let me tell you, there is no greater heritage, no greater blessing for you to pass on to your children than to give your children the knowledge of the Lord. There's no greater treasure to give them. And, you know, there is no greater message to be consistently preaching to them than than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? Not just the law, hey, do this, do this, do this, but to be preaching to them the need for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ when we sin, to show them the answer and the answer for our sin problem and how we can grow and change. And so I want to boldly encourage you this morning, parents and even grandparents, center your lives around the Lord. Center your homes around the Lord, around the Lord and around his people, the church. Is it, it's a big ask these days to say, hey, look, make the church a big deal in your home. Not just a big deal, but center your life around it, right? This is the people of God, right? This is, this is how God is working in this world. Center your life around it. In and through the Lord and in and through his people, you are going to find blessing in Christ, your kids can be, be well-educated, they can be socially connected, they can get the best scholarships, get into the best schools. But if they don't have the Lord, what, what does it profit in the end? Now, even as I, I make this kind of a, an appeal, I also want to just recognize that even if we, even with these kinds of encouragements, even if we do all the right quote-unquote things to raise our children right, I just want to want to acknowledge that it is the Lord who brings new spiritual life, not the parents. Right? We we as parents maybe want people like Ham to get it, right? Ham, man, you saw we built the ark, right? We went through the floodwaters together, right? And yet here he is re- spurning Noah, dishonoring him and re- and rejecting him as his lord. Not Noah as his Lord, but the Lord as his Lord. Right? We, we can do all the right things as parents, but it is the Lord who brings new spiritual life. And so I would also encourage you to pray. And I would ask, if, you're, if your kids are already grown and gone, then pray for the kids, other kids in this church and the other parents in this church. You have a role to play in the next generation. Well, next, we're going to look here at what happens next in the text. We have Shem and Japheth's righteous response. So if Ham did, responded in, with dishonor and responded in all the wrong ways, we see here that Shem and Japheth, they responded righteously. They responded in all the right ways. Let's read here verses 23 and 24. It says, Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, 
and they laid it on both their shoulders, and they walked backward. They really bent over backwards here, literally, <laughs> to make sure that they didn't dishonor their father, right? They put the garment on their shoulders, and they walked backwards, and they covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Let's read the next verse too, verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, and we're going to get to the curse here in just a moment. So as I said, it's clear here that in every way that Ham dishonored his father, Shem and Japheth did the opposite. In fact, they not only didn't join in Ham's mockery, but they actively sought to cover their father's shame. Uh, the Hebrew here literally says that they took the garment, the garment. That's why I, I picture here that, that Ham actually took his father's garment out and said, hey, look at this. And then Shem and Japheth took that garment, put it on their shoulders, backed up, and covered Noah back up with his own garment. Um, 1 Peter 4.8 says this, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Uh, I think this applies well here to what Shem and Japheth did. Uh, they communicated this kind of love and respect for their father. Uh, Kent Hughes commented on this point that Shem and Japheth were unwittingly imitating God. Remember, after the, the fall into sin, God he uh, sacrificed the animals and he took the animal skins and he covered the shame of, of Adam and Eve with those garments. Adam, uh, Shem and Japheth unwittingly were imitating God and as beloved children of God, uh, we ought to imitate our heavenly father. And that's what, what Shem and Japheth did. And as the text says here in verse 24, Noah, he awoke from his wine and, and he knew, we don't know how, but he knew what his, his youngest son had done um, and it goes on to describe here the way Noah curses and then blesses his sons. First, the curse, verse 25. Let's just read that. It said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Noah pronounces a curse upon Canaan. Did you notice that? Not Ham. Right? So he pronounces a curse on Canaan, the son of Ham, for what his father Ham has done. And Noah says, let Canaan be a servant to his brothers. And not just a servant, but a servant of servants. How would you like to be a servant of servants? Right? It's pretty low. I don't think it gets much lower than that. Why did Noah curse Canaan instead of Ham? Doesn't that seem a little unjust? Right? Uh, I think... It hardly seems fair, and, and by implication, it hardly seems fair of the Lord. Listen, when you're studying the Bible and, and you know certain things to be so clear from Scripture, like the fact that God is a just God, then you need to dig into a passage like this and ask yourself, what, what's going on here? How can God be a just God cursing, allowing his prophet Noah to curse Canaan for the sins of his father? The Lord himself made it clear in, in the law that he gave to Moses that a child was, was not to be punished for the sins of his father. Did you know that? 
Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16, it says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. It's a principle in the law of God, right? We're not to punish uh, a son for what his father has done. Uh, you can also see Ezekiel 18.20 says something very similar to that. Furthermore, I would emphasize to you that on judgment day, each person is going to be judged for his own sins. I want to be absolutely clear about that. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or or evil. When we stand before Christ someday on, the, on Judgment Day, we will not stand or fall because of the sins of our, of our parents or our grandparents. We will stand or fall because of our own sin. Scripture makes that abundantly clear. 1 Peter 1.17 says something very similar. It says, And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds... Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Right? God is an impartial judge and he judges each person according to his own deeds. So with, with those two principles stated here, that, that we're not to put the son to death for the sins of the father and that we each ultimately stand before God uh, based upon our own sins, I, I have to tell you that Scripture also makes clear, one more principle here, that God himself retains the right to visit the consequences of the Father's sins upon future generations. Let me say that again. God himself retains the right for himself to visit the consequences of the Father's sins upon future generations. I can show you this all over Scripture. I'm just going to show you two passages here. Exodus 20, 5, 5 and 6. This is the Ten Commandments again. This is the Second Commandment. It says, You shall not bow down to idols uh, or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting, here it is, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Uh, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7 says something very similar. This is a really important passage in, in the Bible where the Lord passes in front of Moses and his name is proclaimed. And this is what he proclaims, the, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. I like how John MacArthur said it. He said, no son bears the guilt of his father, but, but the children of a sinful generation are powerfully affected by the consequences of the sins of a society. You feel the darkness of that? Uh, I, ho I hope that you do. I hope, I hope it kind of makes you feel like, well, who then can escape? I mean, 
raise your hand this morning if you have a sinless father. You know, I think we even see this in our own culture. I'm a millennial, and I can't tell you how many times boomers crack jokes on me for being a millennial. You know, we, the boomers look out at the millennials and they say, man, can you believe what they're doing? It's way worse than what we were doing. And who can help but wonder where Generation Z will take us next? Aren't the consequences of our generational sins compounded and amplified in the next generation? Don't you see the consequences of the, the 60s and 70s on my generation? You see the consequences of my generation are now being amplified in my kids' generation? It's the way it works. And only God has the, the right to judge multi-generational sins. God nowhere gives that right to any, any human court. But God is the, the, the good and patient judge of all the earth. God is incredibly patient. But there comes a point. He will not be mocked. And there comes a point where God says that's enough. And he reserves the right to visit the consequences of the father's sin upon future generations. And that's what we see here. And like I said, I hope you feel the, the darkness of that, right? Because it's the world that we live in. We live in a, a world where the sins of one generation just pile up on the sins of the next. And I, I think here at Christmas time, we can just be reminded that the coming of Christ was such a, a sudden beacon of light in a dark world. You just can't even, can't even imagine it. The prophet Isaiah said something to the effect of that those dwelling in darkness have seen a great light at the coming of Christ. Jesus absorbed our curse He even has the, uh, the, the power to absorb the compounding generational sins that are upon us on the cross. That's why he had to be stripped down and beaten and spit upon and nailed to a cross and put to shame to, to, to absorb that kind of darkness and, and shame on our behalf. That's what he did for us. He alone can absorb it. He alone could take it on the cross, be buried, and then rise again to new life, bringing light to us, bringing hope to us of escaping this downward cycle of generational sin. And so Noah here in Genesis chapter 9 is not executing some sort of legal punishment on Canaan. That, that would be unjust. If Canaan would have said, hey, Ham, you came in and you shamed me in this way. I'm going to take your son and I'm going to go make sure he gets thrown into prison. That would have been unjust. But what Noah is doing here is he is speaking as a prophet and he's uttering a, a curse. 
a curse that, by the way, would ultimately be powerless if it, if it didn't somehow reflect what God ultimately had in mind to have happen. Uh, a man does not have the power to curse anyone. Only God holds the power of blessing and curse. But Noah is here speaking prophetically. And I think he looks out over his son's lives and he sees in them the seeds of what would become the future. He sees God's sovereign hand at work. And he realizes that through him who's rejected the Lord and through his son who probably has already rejected the Lord and showing many of the same characteristics of his father that that they had in their rejecting of the Lord that that there was a cursing in that it was not a blessed position and he could look at his sons Shem and Japheth and see by contrast that they were in a position of blessing and so he declared it and so let's look at the blessing here verses 26 through 28 Noah also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So God turns, or Noah turns from cursing his son Ham, who shamed him, and he turns to Shem and Japheth, and he blesses them. But he does something unexpected. He blesses his second-born son, Shem, even above his first-born son, Japheth. You would expect the first-born son to receive the blessing, the first blessing. But he actually lifts Shem up, the second-born, to the highest place. And notice how he blesses Shem. He doesn't bless him directly here, but he says, Blessed be the Lord. He doesn't say, Blessed be Shem. He says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Why does he do that? He blesses the Lord, the God of Shem, apparently because the Lord had moved in Shem in such a way that Shem had a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord was not just Noah's God anymore. The Lord was Shem's God. And as I've been saying here, I, I think in one sense, Noah is speaking prophetically here. God has given him sight, you know, supernatural sight to see the future. But in another sense, I don't think it takes a prophet to see where true blessing flows from. Shem had made the Lord his personal Lord. Noah knows where true blessing comes from. True multi-generational blessing is to be found for those whose God is the Lord. It is inevitable. Meanwhile, those who reject the Lord, there is inevitable harm. Inevitable multi-generational harm in rejecting the Lord. It's a principle to be found throughout Scripture. I think prophetically, Noah saw that Shem and his descendants were emerging as the messianic line through whom would come Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, through whom would ultimately come the Christ. 
Meanwhile, Ham's descendants, particularly Canaan's descendants, would become the Canaanites, the immoral and idolatrous Canaanites who would take possession of the, of the promised land. And the, the Exodus generation, the, that generation of Israelites who were down in Egypt, and they were, God brought them out of slavery into the wilderness, and they were approaching the Canaanite land, and it was going to be their job to displace the Canaanites out of the promised land and take possession of it. And I think as Moses was writing this down for them on behalf of the Lord, I think Moses knew that the children of Israel needed to know. I mean, they needed to know that the Canaanites had been cursed of God for generations. And on the other hand, they needed to know that in the line of Shem, that they were in a position of great blessing and strength from the Lord for generations. God was doing something that was bigger than just the Exodus generation. He had, been, he had, had this planned all the way back from when Noah spoke this curse and this blessing. They needed to know that what was their grand position in the Lord. Now, I've entitled this sermon, Do You See What I See? little nod to Christmas time, right? And here's my big idea. Here's the, if you, you know, I've, I've been all over the map this morning with this. <laughs> But if you want to walk, write down one thing and, and walk away with one thing, this is the, the one thing I want you to take away with you this, this morning. It doesn't take a prophet to see the certainty of blessing in Christ. I can look at you and see that if you have trusted in Christ, I can speak a blessing over you. You are in a position of grand blessing in Christ. And by the way, the, the opposite is true. That if you have rejected Christ and you are willfully turning your back on him, it doesn't take a prophet to see that you are in a, in, in a place of great harm. In a place of great danger. And here's the problem. The problem is we often forget what is our grand position in Christ. Just like the Israelites, I had Rich read this morning the story of the children of Israel. They, they came out of Egypt with signs and wonders. They walked through the middle of the Red Sea. God split it, right? They were being led by a pillar of fire and a cloud that was the presence of God in the wilderness. And they, they come up to the very edge of the promised land. They're standing there ready to go in and God says, hey, get, pull together, you know, some some spies, 12 spies, and send them in so they can scout out the land. And so they send them in there and they come back. And 10 of them give a bad report. They say, oh, the Canaanites, they're so big, we were like grasshoppers in their eyes. And the hearts of the children of Israel melted. They said, they said they were ready to go back to Egypt where they could be safe. And they were ready to overthrow Moses and elect a new leader to take them back to Egypt. The problem is that we forget what is our grand position in the Lord. The children of Israel should have known 
that the, the Canaanites were not destined to have the possession of the promised land, but they were in because of the blessing of the Lord. So I'll just leave you with this, that Ephesians 1.3, Paul tells us that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been given every spiritual blessing, but we forget it. So Paul, he admonishes us as a church to pray for one another that we might know, and I mean know with a heart knowledge what is the hope to which God has called us. And that is my prayer for you. I pray this for you all constantly, that you might be reminded that you might know who you are in Christ and whose you are. Let me tell you, my friends, there's, there is no lasting blessing or happiness apart from the blessed one. So may God open eyes this morning to see that in Jesus, there is great happiness, both now and forevermore. And I would just invite you, if you have never trusted in Christ, you don't have to be a prophet to see it. I pray that God would open your eyes, though, to see that in Jesus, the blessed one of God, there is blessing now for your children and your children's children and forevermore. Let's pray.